Uh, well, a very warm welcome to you. As Steph just said, my name's Rich. Um, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you all with us. If this is your first time, you're very welcome. Um, if this is not your first time, you're still very welcome. Um, but we're, we're working through um, a series um, in the book of Luke. Um, so before Christmas, we were looking at some of the parables. Um, and now between um, well, the end of January, right through to Easter, we're looking at um, the Holy Week, the last week um, before Jesus' um, crucifixion um, on the cross that will end at Easter. Um, and today uh, we're going to be in Luke 22. We'll get there uh, in just a second. And my Bible's in a different place. Oh yes, that's because I wanted to start with this. Um, So at the end of the time of worship, um, we sang a couple of songs, um, and I just really felt, and then Cthulhu brought that word about um, the name um, of Jesus. And um, in Acts 4, um, what we see is some of Jesus' followers um, are basically dragged before some of the religious leaders, um, and... um, and they basically um, are just railing against them, just challenging them not to preach Jesus, not to preach his death and resurrection. Um, and this is their response. They say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And today we're going to be looking um, at one of our themes is going to be salvation. Um, One of our themes is going to be the salvation um, that Jesus brings. And I just felt it was so poignant um, right at that moment. God just gave me that verse towards the end of our time of worship together. Um, But in order to start with our passage today, we kind of need to um, scroll back uh, a couple of thousand years, well, a few thousand years um, into the book of Exodus um, so the time that Luke 22 is written, um, the, the, the Israelites are celebrating um, the Passover. Um, and this is um, a festival that kind of harks back. It reminds them um, of an event that happened um, thousands of years ago when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Um, and essentially, God raises up a man, Moses. If you've seen um, the Disney film, Prince of Egypt, you'll have some concept of what it's about. Um, but essentially, um, God's people are enslaved in um, Egypt, and God brings uh, plagues. He brings ten plagues um, to uh, Egypt um, as judgment on them. Um, and each time, um, Moses, who's this guy that God's raised up, um, says to Pharaoh, will you let God's people go? Um, and during the plague, he says, yeah, fine. And then once the plague's over and everything's back to normal, he says, no, actually, you can't go. And he keeps changing his mind over and over and over again. Um, and we see this happen throughout um, 10 plagues. You can read about the story um, in the first kind of first 10 to 15 chapters of Exodus. Um, and um, essentially, it finishes with the, um, a last plague, which is kind of, if you like, God's, God's final plague on Israel. Um, and the 10th plague, if you like, um, is, 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 um, is the most severe. Um, it's, it's essentially that he says to Egypt, he says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every one of your houses. Um, and, um, and in that, that's going to be a demonstration that you should let my people go. Um, and he says, when that happens, Pharaoh is going to let the people go. In fact, he's going to drive you out. Um, he's going to want you to be gone um, because of the, 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 the final plague. 
Um, and so this final plague, um, what happens is, we'll jump back so um, it won't come up behind me, but uh, I just want to read a couple of verses about what the Israelites had to do. Um, because God was going to kill the firstborn of every single house. Um, and God gives specific instructions to his people um, so that they wouldn't come under um, the same plague, so that they wouldn't come under the same um, spirit of death. Uh, in um, Exodus 12, verses 12 uh, to 13, um, it says, And I will pass through the land of Egypt that night... And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And now what God had done is he'd given very specific instructions to his people. He'd said, what you have to do, you have to take a lamb and you have to sacrifice the lamb And you have to take that blood and you have to put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your houses. And then in these verses he says, wherever I see that blood on the doorpost, on on, on the lintel, wherever I see that blood, I will pass over that house. um, And your your family will be spared. I won't, the destroyer, it says the destroyer won't come in um, and kill the firstborn. Um, And so this happens. Um, And it's a picture um, of God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. That essentially, um, God kills the firstborn of the Egyptian houses. um, And basically, they wake up the next day um, and they drive them out um, of Egypt. And they drive them out into the desert. Um, And and it's a picture of God releasing his people um, from slavery um, to Egypt. Um, and we see, we see this for a very dramatic um, point in um, Israel's history. Um, he leads them into the wilderness. For you, for you that know the story, um, he, he leads them to the promised land. Um, that's the final destination to establish um, the promised land, to establish his holy nation um, with Jerusalem, his holy city. Um, that's the end goal. But first of all, God's salvation um, of uh, the, his people, they are delivered out of um, slavery to Egypt. And so... Um, Israel, the Israelites would celebrate this every year. Um, it was the Feast of um, the Unleavened Bread. Um, and basically, it climaxed with a meal where they sacrificed a lamb um, and then they would eat together um, and remember God's deliverance, remember God's salvation out of Egypt um, and the promises um, that they were then to be brought into. So, um, in our passage in Luke 22, fast forward several thousand years, um, Jesus and his disciples have entered Jerusalem at this time. So uh, we read right in the. I'm still in Acts. Um, <laughs> we read in Luke 22, uh, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, um, that is called the Passover. So this point that celebrates God's deliverance out of Egypt, this is the time that Israel is celebrating. So Jerusalem would have been packed. Um, the atmosphere would have been electric. Um, there would have been lots of things, uh, lots of festivities, lots of things going on as they celebrated um, God's salvation. And they looked forward to an, another salvation that had been prophesied. And so we're going to read, we're going to jump in um, at... Uh, Verses 1 to 6. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. 
And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So in the midst of this kind of great celebration, this great festival, um, we get introduced to this guy, Judas. Um, and um, from those verses, we can see the tension has been mounting. Over the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus um, confronting various different um, groups within society. Um, he's been challenging them on things. Um, and so the tension around Jesus is mounting. And they're seeking how to put him to death because they fear the people. Jesus has started to gather a crowd um, that follow him everywhere. Um, and they can't just assassinate him and get rid of him because they've got, he's got this whole crowd of followers um, that are following along behind him. And so they're looking for a way um, to kind of uh, get him. And then we get this rather cryptic introduction to Judas. Um, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. But what was Judas like? What kind of person was Judas? It it can seem a little bit um, as if Judas kind of uh, had no kind of stake in it, as if he was uh, just succumbed to the enemy um, at this point. It's not quite true. If we look at Judas, well, scholars believe that he was um, a zealot. Um, a zealot were, uh, they were a sect within um, the Jewish people. Um, and essentially what the zealots believed is that God's um, promised Messiah... So his deliverance in Egypt and the prophecies that told of a coming salvation, um, they believed that the Messiah who would bring that salvation would come, drive out their enemies, and establish Israel um, as a holy nation. The zealots believed this would, this would be that Jerusalem would once again be kind of um, made glorious, made beautiful, would become the centre um, of God's uh, people, would become um, the place of worship once again. The Roman authorities would have been driven out. Um, essentially, it would have been a revolution. Um, it would have been quite dramatic. Um, they were often known for being um, violent in their uh, tactics. Um, and... Um, what they would do, what they would often, they would be expectant that, that it was all going to happen in this one event um, and everything was going to change and Israel would again be established. But what we see from kind of the biblical narrative um, and where the zealots kind of got it slightly wrong, um, Malcolm touched on it last week, but essentially um, Jesus um, came um, and brought salvation through the cross. Prophecy then tells us he would go away again and then return and in his second coming he would establish a new Jerusalem. He would establish a new holy city um, and we live in that period in between. But the zealots kind of put the whole thing together. And so they were looking for this very dramatic um, single event uh, that would essentially lead to a revolution and all of a sudden the Israelites being back on top, being established as a holy nation um, once again. Harking back to some of the days of old, um, but, but more so um, as God's promise of salvation was fully realised um, and they lived in light of that. Um, but there's a couple of problems at this stage. Because Jesus' talk in the last couple of chapters isn't 
doesn't seem to be about revolution. Um, in fact, he says to them um, in Luke 20, he says, if you're going to pay, if, if, pay taxes to Caesar, he takes the coin and he says, whose face is on that? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The zealots are thinking, well, hold on a minute, why are we going to pay taxes? You're supposed to overthrow them. This doesn't make any sense. And then again, um, in Luke 21, um, we looked at it last week as, the, the, as Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. This place that's meant to be the center of worship, this place that represents the presence of God is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem, his holy city, is going to be razed to the ground. If you're a zealot, you thought it was going to be violent, but this is kind of something other than what you were expecting. And so Judas, in his mind, is probably trying to reconcile some of these things and try and work out some of these things. Um, and it would seem that he's kind of at the point where he's, he's, kind of, he's, he's followed Jesus for several years and he's kind of got to the point where he realizes he's in too deep. He doesn't actually quite believe Jesus' message. He's not fully given and submitted to Jesus' words. And at that point, he's got a decision to make. Because now he's either going to have to go against his, his own understanding or what he thinks, or he's going to have to submit himself to God's will. Um, and so what we see here is actually where it says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. He didn't submit himself to God. He actually uh, trusted in his own, or what he thought was his own understanding. Um, and we see, we're introduced a little bit more to Judas's character in John uh, chapter 12. Uh, I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, in John chapter 12, verses 3 uh, to 6, it says, um, uh, Mary therefore took a pound, so Jesus and his disciples, so Judas would have been among them, um, have gone to somebody's house um, and they're eating um, uh, in this house, um, and uh, Mary, uh, this woman, uh, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment uh, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so that gives us an insight into Judas's, Judas's character. He's not really concerned with, 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 with Jesus. He's concerned with his own agenda, really. Um, why didn't you sell this perfume um, and then I could help myself later, essentially is what he's saying. He's saying, why is this woman just lavishly pouring out worship on Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Essentially, what he's trying to do is he's trying to prevent or hinder or he's withholding worship so that ultimately he can help himself. So that ultimately he can do what he wants to do. Um, he can focus um, on his own um, ideas. And so we get this point where Judas uh, has... has um, all of a sudden realises his expectations um, are different to Jesus's. And essentially he goes away and with the chief priests and the scribes, um, he basically confers to betray him. And this short instance is right in the middle of the Passover. So if something dramatic is going to happen, um, his understanding is this is probably the moment. 
Because this is where we celebrate the Passover, God's salvation past um, and God's salvation to come in the Messiah. So let's read on then. So we'll jump in uh, at verse 7 then. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters um, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. This is the second time Jesus has done this. Um, If you remember, well, he does it elsewhere. Um, But essentially, he foretells the events um, and then tells them what to do. Um, So do you remember uh, right at the beginning of the series when um, he spoke to his disciples? He said, go into the village ahead. Um, There you're going to find essentially a colt. Untie it um, and bring it to me. Um, And essentially, they, they do exactly as he says and events unfold. Um, and this is the second time he does that, where he says, go on ahead and prepare the Passover. And they're like, well, where? Where do we go? And he says, well, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. Um, and he talks them through every step of the way. He gives them very clear um, instructions. And this, is the, this feast is the pinnacle of the festival, if you like. It's, it's the moment where they sacrifice the lamb um, and they eat together together. Um, to remember um, Christ's salvation, uh, to, to remember God's salvation um, of the people out of Israel. Um, and so um, I think Jesus is so intentional about the detail for two things. It shows us two things, um, really. One, um, it demonstrates his utter control over the situation. And actually, that's, that's, that's been... That's what we've tracked with over the last few weeks, that actually Jesus demonstrates utter control over the situation. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows the events as they unfold. And second of all, it shows us his utter devotion and commitment to the cause. He's absolutely persuaded um, and unswerving um, in his actions. And he knows what's about to come. He knows about, if we fast forward a couple of days, we know the, the trial, we know the beatings, we know um, the betrayal, we know um, the crucifixion. We know Jesus knows all of these things, and yet he's 100% unswerving in his commitment to see them right the way through. I can remember when I first, first kind of understood this, um, and I was reading a passage in John, um, and um, in John ten seventeen, it says, "For this reason, this is Jesus speaking." He says, "For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority." To take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. 
And there's such intentionality. Jesus is saying nobody, the, the, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, through all of that, nobody takes my life from me. In fact, we see elsewhere in the Gospels that crowds surround and they press in around him. Um, <laughs> there are moments when Jesus literally just walks through the crowd and he's gone. And bearing in mind, this is a crowd of people that are gathered around him because to, to, they want him. They're there for him, to grab him. And he literally just walks through their midst. And yet here, what he's saying is, actually, I am absolutely committed to following this through. And we'll see a little bit more um, in the rest of the series how he agonizes over this decision, um, but ultimately is completely focused um, on where he's going um, and what he's about. And so they go to prepare the meal. um, And then we jump in at verses 14 to 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It's his choice, his decision but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And so now um, they gather together. They, 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 they've prepared the meal. They've sacrificed the lamb and they sit down um, to eat. And Jesus says this quite powerful statement, really. Um, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, this meal is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God once I have suffered. So after I've gone through that suffering, this meal that you celebrate, where you celebrate God's salvation, will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Essentially, he's saying, my my sufferings are are going to demonstrate the fulfillment of what this meal represents. God's salvation, past, present, and future. It represents that, and it's going to be fulfilled once I've suffered. You see, the meal represented God's deliverance out of um, Egypt. And even John the Baptist um, when he first sees Jesus, well, not when he first sees Jesus, he was his cousin. Um, but um, in John 1, um, he, says, um, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is basically saying this Lamb that has been sacrificed so that we can partake and celebrate in this deliverance. He says, I am that Lamb. The sacrifice that I make 
is going to prove to be the fulfillment of, my, of this deliverance, of this salvation um, that has come to you. Essentially, he's saying just like that lamb, that lamb's body was ripped apart, um, his blood was shed, Jesus says to them, my body is going to be broken for you. It's going to be torn apart for you. And just like that blood of the lamb that was then spread on the doorpost and on the lintel, Jesus says, my blood that is poured out for you is poured out for the new covenant. A covenant is just a promise. So where that, where that lamb's blood on the doorpost represented the promise that God would pass over their houses. So Jesus says, if you are washed in my blood, then I will, then I will, I will, I will, I will pass over you. I will, I will essentially bring salvation to your house. I will deliver you out of slavery. It's crazy when you think about it because um, the Bible talks about, um, talks about slavery, but not necessarily slavery to Egypt, as they would have understood thousands of years ago and what they would have been celebrating at the meal, but it talks about slavery to sin. You see, sin is rebellion. Sin is, if you like, us um, or man turning our backs on God. Sin is essentially us deciding that we can do it ourselves, that we can go our own way, that actually we don't need God's deliverance. We don't need God to help um, deal with that um, problem of slavery to sin. Actually, we can go it our own way. But actually, um, the Bible's really clear that that rebellion against God, that turning to our own desires, um, is actually, if you like, turning away from God and actually putting confidence in the flesh. Um, And it says that the wages of sin is death. What that then leads to is death. And just like at the Passover, um, where death came to each and every house, except where the blood had been spread on the doorpost and the lintel, So unless our hearts have been touched and purified and washed by the blood of Jesus, there is death. There is a result of sin that leads to death in us. But the wonderful news is that actually if we come um, and give ourselves to the Lord, if we come um, in submission before him and we partake, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. If we receive that gift, that sacrifice that he made, then actually he takes in his body the death, the sin that we deserved. And actually we are then raised to new life in him. And actually it is an event, it's a decision that we make where we first come to him and we say, Lord, I'm going to trust in your sacrifice on the cross for my sin. But actually, it's a daily decision that we make. That actually we say today, Lord, I'm going to trust in your work on the cross and I'm going to trust um, in your salvation next day. Lord, I'm going to trust in your cross. I'm going to trust in your sacrifice. And I'm going to trust 
that you will raise me to new life in you. It's essentially a daily pattern of walking in submission um, to God. And we see we're going to take the bread and the wine um, a little bit later. But so what is the, what is the promise? Because Jesus says, doesn't he? This, is this, cup that, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's a promise that he's made. That he will raise us to new life in him. That actually we no longer need to, um, in Romans 12, we no longer need to be conformed to an old way of thinking. But actually through the blood of Jesus, we can have our minds, we can have our hearts, we can have our bodies purified um, by him. And that's incredible news. That's incredible news because it means that whatever we're facing day to day, whatever uh, life throws at us, whatever situation might seem insurmountable, as we come and submit ourselves to God, that actually he raises us to new life. And we find grace, we find strength, um, we find victory in him. And so what do we do, what do, we do with this? Because this is some pretty powerful words. I know it's, it's, it's quite a heavy, I mean, it's a heavy topic, right? I mean, Jesus is about to be betrayed. Not only that, he knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows who's going to betray him and even says at the end, um, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, right? It's a very, I mean, it is a serious passage. I mean, I think when it comes to us and how we then begin to apply this to our lives, we start to recognize that actually Judas had done something a little bit reckless. He'd essentially withheld worship. Where he'd withheld worship um, from Jesus or he'd prevented or hindered worship from Jesus, he'd actually created a little bit of space um, in his own heart. And what he'd done is he'd given a foothold to the enemy is he said, actually, Jesus, you can have everything but this bit. Yeah, fine, I'll follow you if you're going to bring about a revolution and we're going to establish Jerusalem. Great, I'll follow you, but oh, we're not quite like that. And so he's withheld um, something of the devotion um, that was rightfully due to Jesus. Um, And what we see is actually we often do that in our own lives. Jesus, I give you everything but this bit. Jesus, I trust you with my finances, but I've still got to pay my bills. I've still got to do this. Jesus, I I don't know what to do with this relationship. Um, I trust you with that relation. Oh, but I can't say that. Jesus, I, I, I can't face being around that person. They really annoy me. Um, but, um, oh, but I can't quite confront them about that. I can't quite say that to them. And so we, like, throughout our lives, there's very, lots of different scenarios that we would face on a daily basis where we have a decision to make. Will we live lives that are fully surrendered? Or will we retreat a little bit? Will we actually withhold worship in certain areas? 
Um, and actually, as we do that, actually it's incredibly dangerous because what we do is we give an opportunity um, to the devil. It says in Ephesians 4.27 um, that actually make sure that you give no opportunity to the enemy. That's the warning that Paul gives um, to the Ephesians. And actually, we could apply that exactly to us today. Don't give an opportunity to the, en- to the enemy. But come and trust wholly in his salvation on a daily basis. Giving yourself afresh to him, saying, Lord, I, I, I lay myself bare before you. Have it all. Oh, you want me to say that? Okay. Oh, you want me to go there? Okay. Oh, you want me to, you want me to love that person? Okay. Now, it sounds simple, but it's incredibly hard. making those small, tiny decisions day in, day out to commit to the Lord and sacrifice and, and give him a whole devotion, give him um, a whole heart, a whole worship. I wonder how many times you actually ask yourself the question, um, uh, uh, what's got my heart? I wonder if you ever catch yourself, because um, if... if, if we're honest, you know, in 1 John it says that if anyone that claims that he is without sin, he deceives himself. And in those moments, I wonder how many times do we ask the question, okay, Jesus, what's got my heart? Show me what really has my heart. Show me what's really motivating and driving this decision. You see, that's a very important question because what it does is it forces us to wake up to the fact that there are areas that we have to fight to surrender to Jesus. There are areas that we have to push through and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to believe you that actually your sacrifice on the cross is sufficient and I'm going to trust that as I lay this down before you, that you will give me grace, you will raise me to new life, you will lead me forward, um, you will speak to me, and I can walk in obedience um, to what you've called me to. And so today, I just have two very simple challenges. First one, perhaps you're not a believer here today. Um, Perhaps you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. Um, Perhaps you haven't understood um, what... Uh, the significance of the cross means, um, what it means for Jesus to have given himself for you, um, for him to have paid the debt that you owed, those wages of sin. Um, Perhaps you haven't fully understood that um, or you haven't fully realised that. Well, today's an opportunity to do that. Today's an opportunity to say, do you know what? I'm coming all in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender to the cross. I'm going to surrender to your work on the cross and trust that as I do that, you will bring about transformation. You, when you rise again, which is what we'll see in a few um, weeks' time, when you rise again, you will raise me to a new life in that. Um, and I will be recreated with a new identity, with new desires, with new affections, with a new orientation on my compass, if you like. And I would urge you, if that's you today, then do that. The Bible talks about that as repentance, turning away from your old way, turning away um, from a way of sin, turning away from uh, a way of life that satisfies your own needs that actually focuses your attention on Jesus, 
that fixes your gaze on him, that actually lives all in. Jesus, I'm all in. I trust in your salvation. I trust in your deliverance um, on the cross. Or perhaps you are a Christian. And perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, maybe. But you know there's areas in your heart, there's decisions that you make, maybe even daily, weekly. There's decisions that you make where you're saying, God, you can have it all but that. Or God, you can, you, you, you can have everything but that. I just want to keep, I just need that. And it doesn't matter what it is. The Bible talks about that kind of lifestyle as idolatry. Essentially, you wanting to retain control over small kind of details of your life is essentially idolatry. You're putting confidence in some of those details beyond your confidence for God. Beyond your confidence in God, sorry. And so the call to you is to come and surrender afresh and say, Lord, that area of my heart, I just open it up to you and I just submit it afresh to you. And so I just want to invite you to stand. And if you are, if you are in the first category, perhaps you're not a believer here, um, then now's an opportunity for you just in your heart to be able to say, Lord, I'm giving it to you. I want to surrender my heart. I want to trust in your salvation, in your deliverance made, made freely available by your grace on the cross. You might not understand everything, but there's an intentionality in your heart that says, God, I want to be submitted to you. And so we're just going to take a couple of minutes, and if that's you, I just want to give you the opportunity in your own heart. You don't have to um, make a big dramatic gesture, but just in your own heart, just say, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to turn away from doing things in my own strength. I want to turn away from my own agendas. I want to turn away from my own motivations. And I want to put my trust fully in you. Amen.